ReachMD XM157 presents a special series, Insights in Future Medicine. X-Stop, an implantable device to help patients with spinal stenosis, was a recent runner-up in the Wall Street Journal 2007 Technology Innovation Awards. What is the X-Stop and why is it a future innovation that you should know about? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on the future of medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Clifford Tribune, an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He specializes in disorders of the spine, including scoliosis and spinal deformity, cervical and lumbar disc and degenerative disease, spinal trauma, and spinal tumors. Welcome, Dr. Tribune. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Today we are discussing the implantation procedure and patient results from a new device for spinal stenosis, the X-Stop. Dr. Tribune, what is the X-Stop? The X-Stop is a metallic device. For your listeners, uh, say the size and scale of it, it would be similar to a large thimble. It is implanted between the spinous processes of the lumbar spine. By FDA labeling, it's implanted between L2 and L5, no more than two levels. What it does mechanically is it distracts between the spinous processes. The act of that distraction puts the facet capsules and ligamentum flavum under tension. By putting them under tension, it actually retracts away from the neural elements, thus creating roughly 18 to 20% more room for the neural elements. When was this developed? The two surgeons responsible for it are Dr. Ken Shu and Dr. Jim Zuckerman. These two physicians are spine surgeons in San Francisco and came up with the idea in the mid-1990s. And after developing some prototypes, formed a company called St. Francis Medical in the late 1990s. And from that company, it subsequently evolved into the X-Stop. Developing a product is a very complicated process. And it's striking, given the relatively simplistic nature of this particular device, how complicated that process can evolve. But essentially, what a young, evolving company must prove is that a device such as this is safe and efficacious for patients. So this takes essentially a pilot study, which the FDA monitors very closely the results. And then if the results appear to be promising, they can then go on to what's called an IDE, or PMA, study, which is a large study, anywhere between 200 and 400 patients. In the case of the X-Stop, it was 200 patients, which are very carefully controlled by physicians involved in the study, the results of which very carefully monitored. And there is monitoring of the results from second-party uh, providers, not the primary physician, thus hopefully providing some lack of conflict of interest, if you would, in looking at the results. These results then are culminated after at least two years' follow-up and presented to the FDA, which evaluates them. If the device itself is approved for use to be marketed in the United States, a letter is issued to the company and they can start marketing. At the same time, there are other issues such as patenting and the quality control issues within the company that must be maintained as well. The company called St. Francis Medical received FDA approval in November of 2005 and officially launched the project in January of 2006. 
from that point, they still have to present ongoing data to the FDA. And as any company interested in long-term growth, they also set up secondary market studies, which are done in investigative centers to continue to monitor the results in other study populations. And the XDOP has benefited from excellent clinical results and ongoing clinical studies, which continue to show its usefulness. So it is not FDA approved, or is it FDA approved? The device is fully FDA approved as of November 2005. And is this something that requires special training to place? To a spine surgeon looking at the device, it actually has a fairly obviously straightforward risk profile. It has a fairly simple surgical technique. However, it is a device that's placed in a unique position in the spine. And as such, the FDA has it recognized as a different code. Therefore, for a company to market it, they do need to be appropriate in their education. What I mean to say is a surgeon that is interested in utilizing the device in his or her practice would need to contact the company and see one of the uh, courses and go through their formal educational program. And how long have you been doing this, sir? Another pathway that the FDA allows a company to have their device utilized while it's being evaluated is what's called a CAP, or a Continuous Access Program. Our institution was able to be involved with that about two years prior to the FDA approval for a total of five patients in our institution. So again, not a large experience, but enough to get my interest up fairly high because I was able to put in three of those five devices in our institution and uh, was quite taken back by the results given the small surgical risk. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment on the future of medicine on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Clifford Tribue, an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We are discussing the implantation procedure and patient results from a new device for spinal stenosis called the X-Stop. Dr. Tribue, why would you use the X-Stop as opposed to a more traditional alternative treatment for spinal stenosis? Well, that is the essential issue of the X-Stop. What niche does it provide and what advantage does it have for a patient and or a surgeon as a patient has presented themselves? The first thing I want to stress is that the surgical threshold for an individual patient should be the same as it is for traditional approaches. The implication of that is a patient is going to come to you with a description of their problem. If they have the symptoms of neurogenic claudication, which is pain as they walk or pain as they stand, make sure that their deficit is enough to warrant a surgical insult. For example, if a person still says they can walk a mile and stand for half an hour and, and perform most of their activities of daily living, they are most likely not a surgical candidate. So once you've established that they are a surgical candidate, then you need to plan your surgical approach. For me, looking at new technology and asking myself why would I incur the cost of an implant when I previously did only decompressions, I actually selected out a particular group to be involved with, namely the group that had a concomitant deformity, either neurogenic claudication with degenerative spondylolisthesis or neurogenic claudication with degenerative scoliosis. Those two patient populations, the traditional approach typically incorporates a decompression and a fusion. This is a fairly destructive procedure. It has a tried and true track record for it, but it is not without its own pitfalls. And for me, approaching this group, if I can minimize their surgical insult and still get reasonable clinical results, I have a win-win situation. Well, excluding those particular problems that are associated 
Would you do this for patients who have, let's say, routine spinal stenosis? Well, I do, but only in a small select group. For example, what I wanted to do was get experience with the device. So utilizing it in that group, and my first review of these were 51 patients, and I reviewed them about six weeks ago in my practice. Of the 51 patients, 38 of those patients had a concomitant deformity. So that's that group that would have otherwise required a fusion. So that leaves another 13 patients that would have had a more typical stenotic picture without a deformity. So yes, in fact, I do do that. Uh, The group that I prefer to do it in is predominantly females under the age of 60 with predominant disease at L4-5. Why is that? The degenerative spondylolisthesis is very common, more common in women than it is in men. And in theory, you're going to get stenosis that can lead to spondylolisthesis or spondylolisthesis that leads to stenosis or just plain stenosis. So if you see someone in a slightly younger age group that has stenosis at L4-5, the physician never knows, is this going to be stenosis that stays without a deformity or is it going to be one that evolves into a concomitant deformity? These deformities are extremely common. Degenerative scoliosis is present in upwards of 17% of patients in incident studies, and degenerative spondylolisthesis is a similar number. So you're going to see these patients with neurogenic claudication. But the other patient that we're just referring to is if I did a traditional decompression in a female with L4-5 stenosis, and then they subsequently developed degenerative spondylolisthesis, it is unknown to me whether or not I have pushed them into the secondary deformity. I certainly would consider it a risk factor to do a surgical decompression to subsequently developing that deformity. So to place the device in that patient population that has a little bit higher risk of developing a deformity would be one of the subgroups of typical stenosis that I would prefer to use the implant rather than a traditional approach. Are there any complications with this device? There is a risk profile to the device. In the FDA study, they had 191 patients total, roughly 100 in the implant group. They had the device displaced posteriorly. I personally have had the device settle into the spinous process of the superior spinous process. And if you think about the efficacy of the device, it is contingent upon the device maintaining a distraction between the spinous processes. And if it extrudes out the back, it loses that distraction. If it settles into the spinous process above, it loses that distraction. The clinical results will mirror the radiographic failures. The infection rate is low. The nerve is not exposed, and that's really a critical point of the device because the best advantage of the device is actually the biggest disadvantage of the device. How's that? Well, a traditional approach, a surgeon goes in and under direct vision decompresses the nerve. And it is satisfying to leave the operating room having seen the nerve, palpated the nerve, palpated the spaces to which the nerve travels. You have a high degree of confidence that you've left that nerve in a better environment. However, in doing that, you expose the nerve to some surgical risk, the development of scar tissue, a possible nerve injury, or even a dural tear. These are less dramatic than they sound, but they're still relative complications of a traditional approach. If you think about the degree of stenosis that has caused clinical symptoms, that also is a moving target. For example, you'll see people in your practice that are 75 years old with stenosis that is incredibly severe, and yet the symptoms are fairly moderate. And then someone 20 years their junior with very moderate stenosis on MRI with fairly marked clinical symptoms. And that is a mismatch. And what it becomes clear is that stenosis is a threshold disease for that individual meaning the neural elements finally get compressed to a certain point that the nerve starts being unhappy. And yet we take all those patients to the operating room and we decompress them all with the same endpoint. 
that meaning to get all of the pressure off the nerve. Well, this device actually works on the threshold concept of the disease process, meaning if you can create just enough room for the neural elements, you can kick someone back over to the other side of that threshold into the asymptomatic zone. And that's what the device does. So it does so by putting the device between the spinous processes without taking down the ligament flavum, without taking down the facet capsule. So you do not expose the nerve to surgical trauma. So again, the best advantage is the biggest disadvantage. You don't get to look at the nerve, but you don't expose the nerve to surgical risk. I want to thank Dr. Clifford Tribue, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the implantation procedure and patient results from a new device called the X-Stop for spinal stenosis. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment on the future of medicine on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to a special series, Insights in Future Medicine, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.